The very first car, new car that is, apart from, you know, old wrecks that I had when I was young, the very re first real car I had was bought back in the 1970s, which shows you how, how old I am, um, from a company no longer in existence, but who had as their slogan, seeing is believing. What I think they meant by that slogan, seeing is believing, that you, wow, you've got to see our cars, you'll never believe, they're really, really so good. The reality was just the opposite. There were so many faults with this car that I used to say to people who knew this slogan, you really have to see it to believe it. <laughs> you wouldn't believe the things that have gone wrong with this car. Not surprisingly, that company long ceased to trade. Seeing is believing. In a way, it's a strap line for our culture because we tend to believe what is evidenced by our eyes and by the understanding of our minds. If I were to say to you that on my way uh, here this morning, I saw a spaceship land on Westminster Bridge and watched while alien life forms came out of it, you would think immediately that I was somehow mistaken. That's if you're being kind. Or you might think I was unwell or hallucinating or badly in need of a holiday. I guarantee that what you wouldn't do is believe very firmly the events that I was relating to you. You would not accept my story until you too had seen for yourself the spaceship in the middle of Westminster Bridge and seen the little green men or whatever coming out of it. Now, if all that seems really quite reasonable to you, then you will have, I'm sure, a great deal of sympathy with Thomas. He wasn't with the other disciples on the day that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them in the house where they were gathered in fear behind locked doors. So Thomas did not see what took place then, and therefore, when that was relayed to him, he didn't accept the version of events that he was told. Just like you with an alien spaceship, Thomas needed to see for himself what the other disciples had seen. He needed to see the marks of the nails in Jesus' hands. He needed to put his hand inside them. He needed to touch the wound in Jesus' side. Then, then, he would believe. Now, we can't blame him for that, can we? How can a man who suffered torture and death by crucifixion possibly come alive again? Particularly, as resurrection in the present age was something that none of the disciples would ever have expected to happen, in spite of Jesus telling them that it was going to do. But a week later, all the disciples are together again in the very same place. And again, Jesus appears to them. And this time, Thomas is there. And this time, he sees. And this time, he believes. Does Thomas really deserve that epithet that has followed him down the centuries of doubting Thomas? As though the others were perfectly full of faith and belief, but not him. 
Well, I don't believe that Thomas actually was really any different from all the other disciples. In chapter 20, the fourth gospel tells us how Mary Magdalene rushes from the empty tomb to fetch Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, probably John. They also see the empty tomb, but, but there's no immediate response of belief until they see the Lord on the evening of the same day, until Jesus spoke Mary's name and then she recognized him in the garden. In verse 8 of chapter 20, Jesus tells, John tells us that the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. But then in the very next verse, the gospel writer adds, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So what did the other disciple believe? That Jesus was risen, which they didn't yet understand, that the tomb was empty, and there could be several reasonable explanations for that. So what did they see and believe? When the disciples gather together that first Easter Sunday evening, they are still filled with fear. And when Jesus appears, he shows them his hands and his side. The gospel then says the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. In truth, the others are really no different, are they, from Thomas? They too need to see in order to believe. And when they do see, when they recognize it's Jesus, when they see the marks of crucifixion, then they know that this is the same Jesus who two days earlier was strung up on a cross, left to die, and then buried in a tomb. And we inhabit a world where people need to see, to believe, just as much, if not more so, than those first disciples. Our whole approach to life has been shaped by the philosophical movements of the last 400 years and the subsequent development of the importance of reason and advances in science and technology. Ever since the French philosopher back in the 17th century, Descartes, uttered those immortal words, I think, therefore I am, human existence has come to be judged and validated by what can be appropriated through the senses and understood by processes of the mind, through reason, rationality, and logical thinking. And without this basis, judgment is suspended. And faith and religion have been subjected to the same approach. The value and relevance of faith and religion have been seriously questioned by a worldview founded on rational scientific materialism. What doesn't fit this worldview is dismissed at best as totally irrelevant or at worst as dangerous superstitious nonsense. The most strident exponents of militant atheism have given full expression to this worldview. What fails the evidence of their eyes or the reasoning of their minds cannot possibly, they say, lay any claim to truth. You must be an idiot to believe in it if you can't see it or prove it. For them and many others, seeing really is believing and belief just is not possible without the seeing of the eye and the seeing of the mind.
And of course, we in the church have not remained unaffected by this development of a worldview that had its origins in the Age of Enlightenment in the 18th century. As a result, we've developed a tendency towards skepticism rather than belief in many places. By this, I mean the assertion that people say, well, this couldn't have happened in the way that the Bible says it was because they didn't understand things like we do and they were a more primitive people. And, you know, we, we know things better now. And so, in a way, it was just a metaphor for, you know, something that didn't supernaturally happen, but, well, you know, that, that's how it was. That's how they expressed it then. Well, I believe that kind of approach has done damage to our view, not only of Scripture, but to our view of faith and to our view of God. And I just want to focus on two areas. One is our worship and our spirituality, and the other is our view of God. Because what tends to have happened, even within the church, is that we've gone from a place where the acceptance of what we might call the supernatural is often largely sidelined to an acceptance of taking on board only that which we see to be natural. Seems to me that in recent decades, much of our worship and spirituality has gone along on what I might call a horizontal rather than a vertical plane. By that I mean there's been a good deal of talk about God and what God might mean to us, but perhaps less so on a spiritual encounter with God. Today is Low Sunday, and it's usually Low Sunday because congregations are a bit thinner than they are on the high point of Easter Day. But I don't think we're doing too badly here this morning. But in a way, for many people, I think every Sunday is a low Sunday because it's low in expectations. I think a lot of us come to worship knowing what we're going to expect. And if we don't get what we expect, sometimes we go away feeling a little bit disgruntled or a little bit upset because things haven't taken place in the way that we would have expected them to, that makes us feel good and, and comfortable. But those expectations are about what we take from the worship. Where are the expectations about how God might come into our worship, how God might do something in our lives, how God might say something in the worship that is totally unexpected. Is that allowed? Or would we feel that God's messed our worship experience up on a Sunday morning? Do we come to worship thinking, how might I meet with God today? How might God speak with me this morning? In what way might my life be different when I go out of those doors from when I came in? As one commentator has put it, worship has become a secular meeting of a faith community rather than an encounter with a supernatural God. And that raises the point that was widely accepted in the ancient world, that truth can be communicated not just at the level of mind, but at the level of spirit. 
Paul talks about this all the time in his letters. Writing to the Romans, he speaks of the way in which God's spirit speaks to our spirits, not to our minds, to our spirits, to convince us that we are children of God. This is not logic, this is not reason, but this is revealed truth from God that lies beyond the scope of logic and reason. And it's still valid today because God hasn't changed his way of working. Let me give you one example. In our healing ministry, those on the prayer team may often ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the root cause of an illness or a condition especially where this may be spiritual in nature. This is so that we can pray in a more informed way into the condition. And equally often, the Holy Spirit will bring to our minds through words, strong thoughts or pictures, what we need to be focusing on in prayer. Now, this kind of knowledge isn't about seeing something with our eyes. It isn't about understanding something with our minds, it's not about medical knowledge and insight. It's about the spirit saying to our spirits, there is the heart of the problem. So our expectations of God and how God might break into our worship and into our prayer and speak to us and engage with us and how God might make something different of our lives because we expect him to be here and we expect things to be different because God is here. And the second area is to do with our view of God because if we have that sense that things are more natural than supernatural and that the supernatural gets sidelined, then our view of God becomes a little bit different. Back in 1952, J.B. Phillips, who was famous for some early modern translations of the Bible, published a book entitled, Your God is Too Small. In the book, he talks about the way in which scientific rationalism has caused us to narrow down our image of God. He says, we've tried to make God fit our worldview based, of course, on our reason and understanding rather than on our faith. As a result, what we attempt for God also diminishes because we can't believe that God is really as big as God truly is because we've narrowed him down to fit our worldview. We attempt what we know that we can reasonably achieve in our own strength and by our own lights rather than by placing our faith, however small that faith may be, in a great and an amazing God. Again, as a healing team, we're starting to learn, if we didn't know it before, that the work of God shouldn't be at all about us and whether we feel adequate or up to the job. The healing work of God is entirely to do with the Holy Spirit. And our job as those who pray is simply just to allow the Holy Spirit to have full reign through us and through our prayers in order to bring change and transformation and healing into people's lives. Jesus lived long before the age of reason, but what today's gospel passage shows us 
is that Jesus saw that faith was something outside of what can be seen and what can be proved, even though faith is something that John Wesley called reasonable. Moreover, the experience of God couldn't be contained by what human minds could comprehend. If that was so, no one would have believed in the resurrection. Jesus commends Thomas and the other disciples for their response of faith to his risen presence after they have seen him alive again. But then, Jesus goes on to question the basis of that faith. Have you believed because you have seen me? He asks the disciples. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus asserts that it's possible to have faith in him without the evidence of sight and mind. This isn't about blind faith, believing absolutely anything and everything we're told, however ridiculous it may be. But on the other hand, it's not about dismissing out of hand anything that can't be empirically tested or proved by our eyes and our minds. And it isn't that there's no evidence, it's just that there isn't the kind of evidence that the world constantly asks for, but evidence there is. How many lives have been changed, healed, restored, renewed through faith in God? How many times have we seen God at work in lives, our lives and the lives of others, because we have prayed in faith? And how would the early church ever have grown and expanded if it were only on the basis of untruths and wild imaginings? The Christian faith is what it has been and still is today across the world because those first disciples saw Jesus and believed. But blessed are those countless billions down the ages ever since who have not seen and yet believe people just like you and me. There'll never ever be sufficient material evidence that would cause everybody to believe. Faith doesn't work like that. Faith does depend on evidence-based reason, but faith works on the basis of trust. Trust in a God we know, but whose existence we can't prove. But other things in life are like that too. A husband can't prove the truth of his love for his wife, except through demonstrating it by acts of love. Similarly, Christians may not be able to prove the existence of God or the truth of the resurrection, but through changed and transformed lives, the presence of the risen Christ can be seen shining out and reflected in human living, as I imagine it was with Thomas. So let me encourage you this morning with the story of Thomas. We all need to some extent the evidence of our eyes and our minds, but faith, though grounded in reason, isn't entirely dependent on it. Faith requires the experience of God, who, like the risen Jesus, can be encountered in many different places and situations beyond our physical sight and our human reasoning, not least in the church's prayer and worship. As a people of faith, we are called to be countercultural, to proclaim truth that lies beyond the realms of what our culture says is true or not. So let's confirm ourselves in that faith and meeting the risen Jesus, declare like Thomas, my Lord and my God. 
And let's have the confidence to take that faith into those places where others, yes, will question, will doubt, even ridicule. But as we go, let us know that the risen Christ goes with us, our Lord and our God. Amen.